0: South Central Los Angeles has long been a focal point in discussions about racial tension and systemic injustices in the United States. This densely populated urban area, marked by a complex history of racial, economic and social disparities, has witnessed struggles that reflect the broader challenges faced by marginalized communities. From the racially charged events of the past to the ongoing efforts for change, South Central Los Angeles embodies a microcosm of the complexities surrounding racism. The narrative of racism in South Central Los Angeles is deeply intertwined with issues such as poverty, unequal access to education and systemic biases within the criminal justice system. The legacy of discriminatory practices and historical events has left an indelible mark on the community shaping its identity and influencing the experiences of its residents. One such event centers around a 15-year-old girl who tragically lost her life way too soon. Frustratingly, what should have been an open and shut case turned out to be the catalyst for one of the most destructive events in the country's history. This is the case of Latasha Harlins. Latasha Harlins came into the world on January 1st, 1976, in East St. Louis, Illinois. She came into this world as the daughter of Crystal Harlins and Sylvester Akoff Sr. Her family included a younger brother, Vester Akoff Jr., and a younger sister, Christina. Relocating from Illinois to South Central Los Angeles in 1981, they settled near 89th Street and Broadway. Just a few blocks from the tragic site of Latasha's future demise, 10 years later. In 1982, Latasha's father secured employment in a steel foundry, while her mother took on a waitress position in a local tavern. The family's stability was marred by Akoff Sr.'s abusive behavior towards Crystal, which often played out in front of Latasha and her younger siblings. The tumultuous marriage came to an end in 1983. Tragically, on November 27, 1985, Crystal lost her life in a shooting outside a Los Angeles nightclub. She was gunned down by Cora Mae Anderson, Sylvester's new girlfriend. This left Latasha and her siblings under the care of their maternal grandmother, Ruth Harlins. Latasha held her mother in high regard and cherished their bond, making Crystal's tragic murder a very impactful event for Latasha. But Latasha would persevere. During her middle school years, she excelled in track and made the honor roll. Despite the challenges of losing her mother and living in the rough South Central area, she pursued her studies at Westchester High School. Known as the neighborhood big sister, Latasha, who once saved her best friend Tybee Obard from drowning had a reputation for fearlessly interacting with older boys. Her reputation throughout the neighborhood was beyond positive. So, just how did someone so beloved find herself facing such a terrible fate? To answer that question, we have to look into the tragic history of racism in South Central Los Angeles. During the Great Migration, spanning from 1915 to 1940, significant numbers of African Americans relocated to Northeastern and Midwestern cities. Areas such as Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, Boston, and New York City were seeing an influx in their black population. The migration was driven by the pursuit of employment in newly established manufacturing industries the quest for improved educational and social opportunities and the desire to escape racial segregation, Jim Crow laws, violence, and racial bigotry prevalent in the southern states. Notably, Los Angeles experienced minimal impact during this migration wave. It wouldn't be until the second great migration in the 1940s that black workers and families made substantial moves to the West Coast. This was seen as a response to recruitment efforts by the defense industry at the outset of World War II. President Roosevelt issued an executive order that instructed defense contractors to eliminate discrimination in hiring and promotions, which opened up new avenues for minorities. This directive played a pivotal role in the significant increase of Los Angeles black population, soaring from approximately 63,700 in 1940 to about 350,000 in 1965. As a direct result of this legislation, the black community in Los Angeles expanded from comprising 4% to 14% of the city's total population during this period. Despite those efforts, racism would only become stronger. Upon returning from World War II or employment in Los Angeles' defense industries, minorities encountered escalating discrimination in housing. They were further marginalized, excluded from suburban areas, and confined to housing in East or South Los Angeles, encompassing neighborhoods like Watts and Compton. These discriminatory real estate practices significantly curtailed educational and economic opportunities. And, as we all know, with poverty comes crime. And when there is crime in a black community, an increased presence of police is not too far behind. In 1950, William H. Parker assumed the position of Los Angeles Chief of Police. Following a significant scandal known as Bloody Christmas of 1951, Parker advocated for increased independence from political influences to establish what he felt would be a more professionalized police force. Garnering public support, he successfully campaigned for charter changes that effectively isolated the police department from the broader city government. By the 1960s, the Los Angeles Police Department was widely acclaimed and promoted as one of the world's premier police forces. But that is a feeling you only resonated with if you were white. The department under William Parker drew consistent criticism from the Latino and black communities in the city due to instances of police brutality. This issue stemmed from Parker's recruitment of officers from the South who held strong anti-black attitudes. Chief Parker himself introduced the term Thin Blue Line, symbolizing the police force's role in combating widespread crime. But it would only be a matter of time before that thin blue line caused an eruption from a black population so oppressed that they just couldn't take it anymore. On the evening of Wednesday, August 11th, 1965, 21-year-old Marquette Fry, a black man driving his mother's 1955 Buick while intoxicated, was pulled over by California Highway Patrol, rookie motorcycle officer. Lee Minicus for alleged reckless driving. Following Fry's failure of a field sobriety test, Minicus arrested him and requested the impoundment of his vehicle. Marquette's brother, Ronald, who was a passenger in the car, walked to their nearby house and returned with their mother, Rena Price, to the scene of the arrest. Upon reaching the intersection of Avalon Boulevard and 116th Street that evening, Raina Price scolded her son for drinking and driving. However, the situation quickly escalated. Someone pushed Price. Fry was struck. Price intervened with an officer, and another officer brandished a shotgun. Additional police officers attempted to apprehend Fry using physical force. Community members reported that Fry had been mistreated, and a rumor circulated that the police had kicked a pregnant woman leading to the formation of angry mobs. As tensions rose, growing crowds of local residents watching the incident began shouting and hurling objects at the police officers. Fry's mother and brother engaged in altercations with the officers and were eventually arrested alongside Marquette Fry. Following the arrests of Price and her sons, the crowd continued to swell along Avalon Boulevard Police attempted to disperse the gathering multiple times that night, but faced attacks as individuals threw rocks and chunks of concrete. Over the next six days, a 46 square mile area of Los Angeles was transformed into a combat zone, an event that would come to be known as the Watts Riots. The end of the riots saw an increase in white flight from the surrounding areas and more stringent policing of the ever-growing black population. The media commentary on the riots spawned a very negative view of black communities all throughout the country, and the black residents of South Central Los Angeles would end up paying the price. On March 16th, 1991, Latasha Harlan strolled to a nearby market just five minutes from her residence in South Central Los Angeles to purchase a bottle of orange juice. Empire Liquor was the name of the store, and it was already a point of contention for the young teen and her grandmother. Latasha was warned by her grandmother not to enter Empire Liquor unless she was planning on making a purchase. There was an understanding amongst the black populace that black customers were not well respected at Korean businesses, so they tried to avoid it as much as possible. During that time, racial tensions were elevated, particularly between neighborhood Korean store owners and their economically disadvantaged black customers. On that particular morning, though, Harlins did intend to make a purchase. She took a short walk to the market selected a $1.79 bottle of orange juice and placed it into her backpack, where it protruded from the top. Carrying the juice, she approached the counter. As recounted by a young witness named Ismail, who was present in the store with his oldest sister at the time, Soon Jadu, a middle-aged woman, saw Harlan's and immediately shouted, you bitch, you are trying to steal my orange juice. Harlins raised her hand, holding $2 bills, and clarified that she intended to pay. Nevertheless, Dew seized the girl by the sweater, initiating a physical altercation. Despite Harlins repeating, Let me go. Let me go. The store clerk refused to release her grip. In an attempt to break free, the 15-year-old girl struck Dew in the face four times, causing her to fall. Harlins then picked up the fallen juice from the floor, placed it on the counter, and walked away. As Harlan's back was turned, Du reached for her gun and aimed it at the back of her head. She pulled the trigger, and Harlins hit the floor. The response to Harlan's tragic death was swift and filled with bitterness. Black residents gathered in protest outside the Empire Liquor Market. And soon, Ja was promptly taken into custody. Months later, in an LA courtroom, the Harlins family sat in the front row, fervently hoping for justice. Prosecutors presented the security camera tape from the liquor store, capturing the entire heartbreaking incident. The courtroom watched the poignant events unfold on fuzzy silent film. Deputy District Attorney Roxane Carvajal addressed the court before playing the tape, stating, this is not television, this is not the movies, This is real life. You will see Latasha being killed. She will die in front of your eyes. The videotape showed Dew grabbing Harlins by her sweater and snatching her backpack. In response, Harlins punched Dew twice, causing Dew to fall. After Harlins retreated, Dew threw a stool at her in a rage, attempting to escape. Harlins was intercepted by Dew, who reached under the counter retrieved a revolver, and fired at Harlan's from behind at a distance of about three feet. The gunshot hit Harlan's in the back of the head, resulting in an instant death. Dew's husband heard the gunshot and rushed into the store. After speaking to his wife, he called the police to report an attempted robbery. The compelling video evidence led the jury to find Dew guilty of voluntary manslaughter while Dew claimed that she acted in self-defense out of fear for her own life. The video told a different story. Latasha is clearly seen on the video walking away before Dew even grabbed her gun. That one piece of the video completely contradicted her claim of self-defense. It was also revealed during the trial that Dew's revolver was altered in a way that less pressure than normal was required on the trigger for the gun to fire. With this information, the jury recommended the maximum prison sentence of 16 years. For a brief moment, the Hollands family experienced a bittersweet sense of relief, having achieved justice in Latasha's case. But that relief would be very short-lived. Judge Joyce Carlin suggested that there were mitigating circumstances in the killing of Harlins. She expressed, This is not a time for revenge. And no matter what sentence this court imposes, Mrs. Dew will be punished every day for the rest of her life. The judge also noted that Dew shot Harlins under extreme provocation and duress, deeming it unlikely that Dew would ever commit a serious crime again. Furthermore, Carlin asserted that Dew's capacity to act rationally in the situation was undermined by her past experience with robberies. For the reasons mentioned, Joyce Carlin dismissed the jury's recommendation and instead imposed a sentence of five years of probation, ten years of suspended prison, 400 hours of community service and payment of a $500 fine and the funeral costs for Harlan's. The community simmered in anger. The tension was palpable, and the rage was on the horizon. The L.A. community needed just one more instance of injustice to push them over the edge. Sadly, they would get it the very next month. In the early hours of Sunday, March 3rd, 1991, just 13 days before the murder of Latasha Harlins, 25-year-old Rodney King, accompanied by his friends, was driving on the foothill freeway in the San Fernando Valley. At 12.30 a.m., officers Tim and Melanie Singer, who were husband and wife and members of the California Highway Patrol, observed King's vehicle speeding on the freeway. They initiated a pursuit with lights and sirens, and the chase reached a speed of 117 miles per hour. King later explained that he attempted to evade the police because he was driving under the influence, a charge that would violate his parole for a prior robbery conviction. After covering a distance of about eight miles, law enforcement officers cornered King in his vehicle. The initial five LAPD officers on the scene were Stacy Kuhn, Lawrence Powell, Timothy Wind, Theodore Brusino, and Rolando Solano. Officer Tim Singer instructed King and his two passengers to exit the vehicle and lie face down on the ground. According to one of King's friends, they were subjected to rough handling, kicks, stomping, taunts, and threats. The other friend was struck in the head while on the ground. King eventually emerged from the car and reportedly patted the ground and waved to the police helicopter overhead. At one point, King grabbed his buttocks prompting Officer Melanie Singer to think that he was attempting to reach for a weapon. King was later found to be unarmed. Singer drew her pistol, aiming it at King and instructing him to lie on the ground. As Singer, gun drawn, moved in to make the arrest. Kuhn, the ranking officer at the scene, intervened and informed Singer that the LAPD was taking command and ordered all officers to holster their weapons. At that point, King was tased and then beaten relentlessly by the officers. This case would be the original brutality of an unarmed black man caught on videotape. Plumbing salesman and amateur videographer George Holliday filmed the beating using his camcorder from his apartment located near the intersection of Foothill Boulevard and Osborne Street in Lakeview Terrace. After his arrest, King was transported to Pacifica Hospital, where it was determined that he had sustained a fractured facial bone, a broken right ankle, and multiple bruises and lacerations, in a negligence claim lodged with the city. King asserted that he had endured 11 skull fractures, permanent brain damage, broken bones and teeth, kidney failure, and emotional and physical trauma, The Los Angeles County District Attorney subsequently charged the police officers, including one sergeant, with assault and use of excessive force. On April 29, 1992, every single officer was acquitted. The officers claimed that they feared for their lives when King resisted their commands to lie on the ground and be handcuffed. With that verdict, the black residents of the L.A. community had now been pushed over the edge. After a predominantly white jury exonerated the four police officers who brutally beat Rodney King in 1991, the residents of South Central reached a breaking point. The streets became a battleground for protests, riots, fires, and gunshots. For five days, Los Angeles witnessed widespread chaos, and the LAPD largely withdrew, leaving much of the city to manage on its own. Latasha Harlan's name echoed through the streets as Korean-owned businesses, including Empire Liquor, were set on fire. Ultimately, the escalating situation prompted the deployment of 2,000 troops from the California National Guard, bringing an end to the 1992 riots. The aftermath revealed a grim toll with over 50 fatalities, more than 2,000 injuries, and a city left grappling with $1 billion worth of damages. After these riots, a federal trial saw two of the LAPD officers who beat Rodney King finally serve time for their crimes, although they only ended up serving 30 months in prison. Carlin retired from the bench in 1997, and went on to pursue other legal avenues. Jadu has stayed out of the public eye since the end of the trial. Well before the emergence of the modern contemporary movements that center around advocacy for racial justice, there was the 1991 killing of a 15-year-old girl by a store clerk. Hollins' family asserts that her tragic death is a significant chapter in the historical narrative that has given rise to demands for justice. The roots of this upheaval predate the beating of Rodney King by four Los Angeles police officers and their subsequent acquittal. The killing of Latasha Harlins and the court verdict occurred around the same period and her narrative is firmly intertwined with that pivotal moment of unrest. While Latasha Harlins's life was tragically cut short, Her memory continues to fuel conversations about the need for compassion, empathy, and change. As society reflects on the events surrounding her death, there is a collective hope that her story will contribute to positive changes that prevent such tragedies from occurring in the future. Rest in peace, Latasha Harlins.